Well, this morning we are um, blessed to be able to, to welcome Dr. Corbin Hornbeek uh, to the stage to share with us this morning. As you know, Dr. Hornbeek is the president of this institution, and, and we are so glad to be able to, to hear from Dr. Hornbeek this morning. So if you would, uh, join me in prayer as we welcome him to the stage. Father, we, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time together. We thank you that, um, that you've given um, uh, a certain message for us to hear and to receive today through Dr. Hornbeek. And so thank you for his willingness to share with us, to be here with us. And God, we just praise you and we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Dr. Hornbeek, come on up. Thank you. Hey, good morning. So good to see you all. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. So when, when do you get to stop saying Happy New Year? Is it like you know, Jan, somewhere mid-January? People are like, why does he keep saying Happy New Year? End of January? Um, I don't know about you. It still feels like the new year. And I absolutely love, I love New Year. Um, gives us a chance to step back and reflect and reset. Um, maybe think about some new priorities. Um, how many of you have a big decision to make in the next week or month or six months? Raise your hand if you have a big decision to make. Yeah. Um, every one of us has <clears throat> big decisions and important decisions. Um, did you realize that uh, every one of us makes about 35,000 decisions a day? Uh, so if you don't have a big decision coming up, it's coming your way. Um, you've got, you know, it's only 1042. Uh, you've probably made 10 or 12,000 decisions already. Uh, what you're going to wear, uh, what you're going to put on in the morning, what you're going to eat, what you're going to do when you're walking down the sidewalk, you're going to go right or you're going to go left. Uh, we make a lot of decisions and uh, we actually make about 277 decisions, almost, I don't know how they landed on 277, but uh, Cornell University did a study and um, uh, determined that we make 277 decisions a day on average just about what we're going to eat. And if you're like me, um, we have uh, like a line item in our budget in our home uh, for ice cream. I mean, we spend a lot of money on ice cream. We spend more money on ice cream probably than on gasoline for our, <clears throat> for our cars. And, um, and every night I have to make a decision about, um, you know, it's gonna be three scoops, four scoops, chocolate on top, whipped cream, sprinkles. Um, my kids used to give me a hard time because um, when I go ice cream, I go big. I don't know about you guys, but there's no, there's no, no value so my wife, Heather, is here uh, today, and she's like, why don't you cut that in half? <clears throat> why don't you just do one scoop? Um, there's no point. Um, it's not enjoyable. You got to go big. So we make a lot of decisions about just what we're uh, going to eat uh, every day. We make so many decisions that actually we have learned uh, to organize, uh, be able to process decisions really really quickly. Um, and there's a number of categories that we've actually learned <clears throat> behaviorally. We've learned, uh, no one taught us these things, we just do them. But there's a number of categories that we have learned to be able to process decisions quickly. The first is uh, impulsiveness. Um, impulsiveness, you just go with the first option, right? You're just impulsive, I'm just going to do that, I'm not going to waste any time. That's kind of your gut instinct, right? Uh, the second is compliance. Um, compliance is kind of when you choose the 
you choose that best option. You think it's going to make people happy. Like, yeah, I don't want to offend anybody today. Let's just go with the most popular decision. Sometimes you might make a decision to uh, delegate, which is the decision to not make a decision, right? I'm going to delegate that and let somebody else make that decision. Uh, sometimes it's avoidance or deflection. Uh, I'm just going to ignore it. Like, forget it. I got too much to do today. I've got three exams. Um, I'm going to avoid making that decision. Um, balancing is another way we make decisions. Uh, you weigh the factors involved. You take a close look at it. You examine them. Um, you use that information to make what you think is the best decision. And then uh, lastly, you uh, prioritize. These are all things that we do <clears throat> on a regular basis Throughout our day, we don't uh, uh, consciously categorize things. We don't say, okay, I'm, I'm going to prioritize things right now. Maybe sometimes you do that. But when you prioritize or <clears throat> reflect on it, you put the most energy and thought and effort into those decisions that have uh, the greatest impact. How is this going to impact? How does this decision impact me? How does it impact my roommates, uh, my classmates, my family, the people I work with? Um, you prioritize those things. You think about, you reflect on how your decision impacts other people. In our virtual world, of course, somebody has come up <clears throat> with an app, right? Um, you got to make this easy, right? Decision making is hard. And I thought, surely nobody has come up with an app to help us make decisions. Um, there are a whole bunch of apps out there, to, and I'm, I'm not, I've never used one, and maybe this helps, uh, but I actually went online, and here are a few apps that, uh, I don't know, you might wanna try out, or let me know how this goes. Uh, one is called Random Decision Maker. Um, I don't know, random. Uh, the other is called Tiny Decisions. I mean, if they're so tiny, why do you need an app for them? Um, but Tiny Decisions. Uh, there's one called the protagonist uh, decision-making. One is called decision-crafting. One is called definitive choice. And of course, there's one called pros and cons, right? You got to have an app. I don't know why you need an app for pros and cons. Just, you know, make a list, kind of divide it down the middle, pros, cons, all those things. What does all this tell us? Um, as we start this new year... And I started thinking about this back in November when I knew I was going to be speaking in chapel today. Um, Decision-making is one of the most common things we do. We make 35,000 decisions a day, right? And yet it's one of the most complex things that we do. Uh, we're always second-guessing ourselves. We're making the right decision. Um, is this the best thing to do? How do I know how do I know if I'm making the right decision? How do I know if I'm making a good decision? How do I know if this decision is going to <clears throat> lead to a catastrophic failure? Um, one of uh, our mentors in our marriage um, always says, um, you need to remember that you can make a bad situation worse. I mean, how encouraging is that? Um, and it's possible. Like, you really can make a bad situation worse. You can make a series of decisions that can uh, lead you down dark alleys, and you're like, wow, I'm in a worse place than I was, and I thought I was trying to... So, um, decision-making. Um, I want to talk about today some of the most consequential decisions that we make. 
So if we make 35,000 decisions a day and 277 related to food alone, um, how, do we, how do we get to the most important things? What, is, what does God have to say about big decisions, in some of the most important decisions in life? Um, what does God have to say about the process? Does God have anything to say about how to make decisions? Or is he just sort of a, um, you know, wind us up and let us go and um, kind of put a bow on the end and it really doesn't matter. So we're gonna talk about uh, a classic text in scripture uh, that I have gone back to over and over and over my entire life. Uh, and I, I really uh, encourage you. It's, it's a text you will be familiar with. Um, we're gonna pull it apart a little bit today. Uh, but I really encourage you all to, to anchor this text in your hearts and minds. Let me read it to you. Romans chapter 12, verses one and two, and this is out of the NIV. And Paul says this, therefore, I urge you brothers in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then, you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Wouldn't it be great if we always knew what God's will is? Wouldn't it be great if every morning we wake up, God gives us a list, and he says, just want you to know ahead of time, this is my will for you for the day. Whew, I mean, that, uh, that would make things a lot easier. Um, but it wouldn't make things better. So today, we're gonna to talk about three things. We're gonna, first of all, talk about a framework that Paul gives us for making decisions. Uh, secondly, we're gonna talk about the process for how we make decisions in keeping with this passage. And then we're gonna close uh, talking a little bit about uh, how we apply this. So the framework for making uh, decisions uh, in Paul's passage here in Romans, it is both theological and it's practical. And there's tension uh, between the theological and the practical part. Um, you are here to get a degree and you are working on a degree, maybe two degrees. I've met some people that are working on three degrees. Um, but you're here to learn how to grow as men and women in your walk with God to make a difference in this world. Um, we hope that you graduate as leaders, as men and women who are equipped uh, to change and influence this world. And decision-making has a lot to do with this. So Romans 12, and those of you who have grown up in the church, you've, you have heard pastors you know, many times say, when there's a therefore, <clears throat> you have to step back and say, what's the therefore, therefore? Um, in this case, there are 11 chapters um, there are 11 chapters that Paul writes from you know, chapter one all the way through the end of chapter 11. And what is Paul saying in those 11 chapters? He is making a theological case about our spiritual condition. He's making a theological case that, <clears throat> that you cannot earn your way into pleasing God. Um, he's making a theological case that God's grace, we just sang that, right? Uh, my sin is great 
your love is greater. What can separate us, right? We sing those words, we say those words over and over. <clears throat> Do we believe those words? I'm gonna fly through a number of very short verses uh, between Romans 1 and Romans 11 uh, that helps us understand what Paul's getting at. And then we're gonna talk a little bit about the culture and the world in which we live. Romans 1, 16, Paul says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes. Romans 3.28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart, apart from observing the law. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8.1, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 9.16, It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. I hope you're letting these verses just sink in and understanding that there is a theological framework for how we approach the whole of life. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And Romans 11, 29, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Our salvation is based on the grace and mercy of God. There's anything that I can do, anything that you can do to change that. Uh, There isn't anything we can do to make God more pleased with us, more happy with us. Bad English, happier. There isn't anything we can do uh, to separate us from the love of God. So let's talk a little bit about the cultural framework. Every one of us here, uh, if you have taken a philosophy class or if you have not taken a philosophy class, every one of us here has a PhD in philosophy. Um, And Paul is introducing something into this passage uh, that will demonstrate um, that all of our decision-making Um, And we can make decisions based on, do we understand what scripture is saying or do we understand what the world around us is is saying? Every one of us lives within a cultural framework and that cultural framework, uh, the philosophy of the day influences us a whole lot. Uh, Influences our thinking, it influences our decision making. Um, I wanna talk a little bit about um, this passage as it relates to what Paul says. He says this, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. What does that mean? Uh, What is Paul saying? Well, Paul is referring to a philosophical, actually a number of philosophical worldviews that shaped how people thought and acted and what they believed. I'm gonna give you a few examples of some of the cultural worldviews. As you listen to these, think about the world we live in today. Uh, It's not too different. In fact, Solomon uh, in the Old Testament said, look, there's nothing new under the sun. So the reality is there's nothing new under the sun. So Epicurus um, was an ancient Greek philosopher. Um, This is what Epicurus believed. Isn't that cool? Wouldn't, Wouldn't you love to have a stone Bust made, that would, what a handsome dude. Um, Epicurus, this is what he believed. 
and it shaped how people thought and how they made decisions. He rejected the idea of any kind of divine or supernatural intervention. He just said, look, there's not a God, he's not involved, and you can do whatever you want. Um, We call that a form of hedonism, right? This is what he said. He said, pleasure was the highest form of human existence. Um, He went a little bit further though. He said, he defined pleasure. He said, the absence of pain and fear, the absence of pain and fear is the highest form of pleasure. So think about that for a minute. Excuse me. If you think that the absence of pain and fear is the highest form of human pleasure, how do you get to that place? I mean, you'll anesthetize your pain, you'll anesthetize your fear, you'll do anything to avoid pain and fear in this world. So Epicurus lived a long time ago, but actually what he believed is pretty common in today's world. In the New Testament, during Paul's time, uh, there was a worldview called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism kind of broke into two camps. Uh, One camp was asceticism, and the other camp was uh, antinomianism. Now, those are big words. You don't have to worry about the words. Um, They're still going on today, uh, all of these things. Asceticism was sort of the opposite of what Epicurus said. And asceticism was the the idea that we should avoid... um, Uh, any kind of pain. Um, So we're going to avoid pain, but he said uh, Epicureanism or um, uh, asceticism took the position that you should avoid pain not by anesthetizing your pain, but through um, forms of self-discipline, freeing your mind from the body, uh, sort of extreme forms of of self, I'm a really disciplined person, and by my own self-discipline and hard work and effort, <clears throat> and maybe a prayer and meditation, uh, but this is, this is what shapes uh, Buddhist philosophy, the idea that you can free your mind from the body. The other camp uh, that Gnosticism broke into was uh, called antinomianism. So asceticism, <clears throat> if, uh, if that was kind of what we might call in today's world legalism, a legalistic approach, I'm gonna discipline my body, I'm disciplined, all these things. Asceticism was the absolute opposite. Um, Antinomianism. Antinomianism actually means uh, anti-law. Nomio means law. So anti-law. This was extreme license. Like you can do whatever, you can do whatever you want, uh, embrace all forms of bodily, sensual pleasure, extreme self-indulgence, things like that. Uh, the opposite, freeing your body from the mind. I'm just going to do what feels good, and I'm not going to think about it. It doesn't matter, right? So what does this have to do with knowing God's will? First of all, what we believe absolutely shapes our decision-making. It absolutely does. As I said just a moment ago, we are all philosophers. We, we, every single one of us has a worldview. Every single one of us uh, has some understanding of uh, if God is involved in my life. Maybe, maybe you're at a place where you're thinking, I'm not sure God's involved in my life. I'm not sure that God has a plan for my life. Um, I'm not sure where he is in that. Every one of us has a worldview, and we are all philosophers. 
So what we believe shapes our decision-making, and Paul is getting right at that uh, when he says, I urge you, brothers, I urge you, sisters, in view of God's mercy, that's the theological framework, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Understand what makes uh, you do the things you do. Secondly, we are all created in the image of God. We're integrated, mind, body, soul. <clears throat> Thirdly, the body is good. Hey, back in Paul's time, there were all kinds of philosophers that didn't believe that the physical body was good. It was just filled, it was in a state of decay. Um, it was, you know, gonna die someday. So there were people that thought, you know what? The body's decaying, the body's dying. Um, it must not be good. And so if the body is not really good, then it really doesn't matter what I do to the body or with the body. That's actually what people thought. So the idea of, of when Paul says, uh, be a living sacrifice, present your bodies before God as a living sacrifice. He was connecting that to the worldview of the day of people that said, I'm not sure that, that it matters at all what I do. And then lastly, our moral choices absolutely factor into our ability to make uh, decisions uh, down the road. <clears throat> well, let's uh, fast forward and talk about, you know, those were old dead philosophers. I'm going to throw out some current philosophies of the day and see if these, um, see if these resonate with you. So the first, um, and then you're going to tell me, I'm going to give you an acronym. YOLO. What does YOLO mean? Yeah, you, see, you guys are philosophers. You only live, <clears throat> you only live once. Um, FOMO. Fear of missing out. See, we, we know. Um, you only live once. Seize the day, right? Um, fear of missing out. Everyone is having more fun than you. Um, relativism. Uh, relativism says that there is actually no objective truth. Uh, truth is what you decide it to be. Truth is what you make it. Uh, no one can tell you that what you believe is wrong. And so... I mean, if you're a true relativist, and trust me, we are all relativists. We have bought into this hook, line, and sinker, right? Uh, so relativism says there's, you know, what I think is right and what you think is right, what I think is wrong, what you think is wrong, <clears throat> that's actually irrelevant, and so I'm just going to make decisions based on what I choose, right? So relativism, we live in a very relativistic culture. Um, one of the outcomes or one of the, uh, uh, what we call situational ethics so there are real practical applications to these things. So situational ethics basically says, um, in essence, whatever situation you're in determines the decision you make. So if you're in a meeting, um, you know, you're in a boardroom someday, and um, you know, the company is uh, cooking the books, for those of you who are accounting majors, uh, the situation itself determines what you do, whether, whether you choose to, to do right or whether you choose to do wrong. Uh, so there's no objective truth with that. Um, okay, uh, narcissism. Anybody know how to spell narcissism? Um, I spell narcissism uh, T-I-K-T-O-K, right? <laughs> That's how you spell narcissism. Thank you. I can't tell you how much that encourages me to have. You guys clap to that. So who was Narcissus? 
uh, Narcissus um, was a Greek, was it that going back into to Greek mythology in the early um, AD, AD 8, was in um, uh, Ovid's Metamorphosis, which was written in AD 8. So Narcissus is a guy that falls in love with himself, um, gazing into his own reflection uh, in the water. Um, and he ultimately dies. He dies in a state of despair um, because he realizes that his reflection can't love him back, right? So he, he just withers in this place of, of despair. Now, another one of the prevailing worldviews is identity formation. Uh, we talk a lot about uh, sexual and gender identity. I choose to be who I choose to be, and this world affirms that. You get to choose who you get to, to be. Um, there was a poem written in 1888 by a guy, English guy named Ernest Henley named, uh, called Invictus. Some of you will have been familiar with that poem. The last, <clears throat> the last stanza of this poem, which I think defines the world and the culture that we live in, says this, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. I'm the, I'm the captain of my soul, master of my fate. Um, that is the world that we live in today. Do you know what you believe? Uh, do you know, have you thought through carefully uh, what God says and what scripture says, about who you are and how you make some of those decisions? Well, I want to talk about, uh, I know we're getting close to running out of time here, but I want to talk about a number of really, really important words. Paul goes on to, in Romans 12, 2, it says, don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will know, uh, be able to discern the will of God. So I want to talk about a number of words, and I'm going to just throw out some of these words. We're going to look at the Greek really quickly. Um, and that'll help us understand what Paul is getting at. The first word is the word conform. Uh, the Greek word is suskematizo. Don't try to say that fast. Suskematizo. It means to take the form of or a mold um, to fashion after. It's like if you're pouring, you know, cake batter into a cake mold. Uh, the, when it comes out of the oven, it, it takes the shape of the pan, right? Um, what Paul is referring to specifically is to taking, taking the shape of the, the philosophies of our world that we live in. The next word is the word transform, uh, with the Greek word uh, metamorpho. This word will sound a little bit more familiar because it means to change form in keeping with inner reality, uh, that inner reality. Who does God say I am? What's the imprint of God's design for my life? Not the uh, taking the shape of the, the external pan, but taking the shape of the internal reality that God has made us. Um, we get our word metamorphosis from this. Uh, in zoology, uh, you remember the, the image of the larvae becoming a butterfly. Uh, metamorphosis, this is metamorphosis. This is the butterfly becoming true, and if you will, true to its original design. It's the idea of a, person 
changing form into a completely different one. This is, in fact, the Oxford, Oxford Dictionary definition. A change of the form or nature of a thing or person into a completely different one by natural or supernatural means. That's the Oxford definition. It includes the supernatural. The word renew, <clears throat> Paul says to renew your mind. This word, Greek word, ana. Chaosis, anakinosis. It means a change of heart and life. So internal, change of heart, internal, change of life, external. And then mind, uh, lastly, uh, the word noose, which isn't just your brain, it's actually your reason and your intellect. It's everything. So we change form. Uh, from the inside out, we transform into the likeness, the, uh, returning, if you will, to the original God, uh, design that God has for us when he made us. All right, <clears throat> let's get back to decision-making and kind of put a bow on this. You make 35,000 decisions a day times seven days a week, that's 245,000 decisions in a week times 52 weeks in a year. So on average, you're making almost 13 million decisions a year. So does it matter what you believe? Does it matter what you think? Does it matter what your worldview is? Does it matter what scripture? You bet. Um, first thing I wanna say is in those 13 million decisions that you make, <clears throat> um, you're gonna make a bad decision. Trust me. Somewhere in the 13 million, you're going to make a wrong decision. Uh, probably multiple times each day, you'll make a decision. You say, oh, I wish I'd done that differently. Um, so the first thing I want to say, you, there isn't anything, and this fits into Paul's framework, there isn't anything that you can do. Your worst decision will not derail you from the grace of God. Your worst decision on your worst day uh, doesn't derail God's plan for your life. But you might want to reflect back and think through, what do I believe? Are you um, like Epicurus, where you're saying, I don't think God is involved at all in my decisions. I um, actually just have a lot of pain and fear, and I would like to just anesthetize every moment of pain and fear that I have. Are you like the aesthetic Gnostics? You're trying to free your mind from your body through maybe unhealthy self-denial or thinking maybe your religious legalism will get you right with God. Maybe you're just trying to free your body from your mind through uh, unhealthy pleasure-seeking. Maybe, um, maybe you're just in a place of YOLO. You know, yeah, look, I only live once. Um, only live once, and I want to have my fun. Maybe it's FOMO, where you're thinking, gosh, I look around and I don't feel like I'm having that much fun, but everybody else is having fun around me. Uh, maybe like Narcissus, um, you're at a place where you're just thinking, Lord, I need to, I think I'm spending too much time thinking about myself. Um, I need to be in a place where I'm thinking about what God is doing in my life. Maybe you're struggling with issues of identity formation. So 
as we close um, today, um, I'd like to ask you all to stand. I'm going to read this passage of Scripture again as we close today. And let me just read this passage again over you. I know we're a couple minutes over. Paul gives us this model for knowing God's will. He gives us a process for knowing God's will, and he applies it. If you live the model and live the process, you, you can know God's good and perfect and pleasing will. So let me read this to you. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind from the inside out. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, perfect, and pleasing will. Let me pray for all of us. Lord, I give you thanks for um, all of these friends who are here, these students. Father, you have a good and perfect, pleasing will a plan that you've designed for us. Lord, we recognize that we live in a culture that pulls us in a lot of different directions and um, throws a lot of things into our thinking about how to make good decisions in this world. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to examine our hearts and our minds, help us to examine what we think and what we believe and what we know to be true about what you have said is true. And apply that. I pray for... Uh, each one here today. Father, as they grapple with the biggest decisions of life, uh, maybe it's who to marry, uh, maybe it's whether or not they should stay in this relationship, maybe it's their major or career path or family challenges and issues, roommate, friendships, responding to your call. Father, I pray that you would guide us and lead us into your good and perfect and pleasing will. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.